0: Hello and welcome to the third season of Scene to Song, a musical theatre podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theatre writer, or a topic or trend in musical theatre. My guest today is Rachel Peters. Rachel is a composer and librettist who writes operas, musicals, scores for plays, and vocal concert works. She has premiered works at Fort Worth Opera, Sarasota Opera, Oberlin Conservatory, Albany Symphony, and Utah Opera, and has upcoming premieres at Opera Kansas and Carnegie Hall. She is an alumna of NYU's Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program. We're going to talk today about the songs of Cole Porter. Rachel thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you I'm really excited to be here
1: I really like this podcast I really appreciate and admire what you do and I'm a big fan so thank you
0: well we as since you know the podcast you know that we get started with our get to know our guest questions Uh, what Uh was your first experience with a musical
1: when I was four years old, my mom took me to see You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, at a regional professional playhouse in St. Louis, where I grew up. And I just thought that supper time was the funniest thing I had ever seen in my whole life. And I was totally hooked. Um, but I have to also give honorable mention to the films of Annie and Grease, which had just come out um, a little later than that, around that time. Uh, and I was obsessed with both of those as well.
0: What was the last great musical
1: you saw? It was definitely a strange loop. I mean, obviously, I'm very biased because Michael and I have been friends and collaborators for so long, and I've seen several phases of the show's development over a decade, and so it felt like such a wonderful triumph and arrival, not just because Michael deserves the notoriety that he's gotten as a result, but because... It was so clear to me that he had figured out exactly what he wanted to say and exactly how to say it. And there was just no question leaving the theater, what his point of view was, what that story was. Um, And it was heartbreaking and funny and all of the things that I look for in a musical
0: as well. Older or classic show did you recently see for the first time and what was your experience with it? Um, well, I wouldn't
1: call it a classic show because it never ever gets done, but I had the good fortune to see a concert performance of Mark Blitzstein's musical No for an Answer, which is from 1941. Um, uh, the New York Festival of Song put it on last November, and I did go in knowing a lot of the songs, but it was really great to finally see them put in context of the story. As much as they could, they did heavily edit the book because it was more of a concert format and the songs were supposed to shine, obviously. Um, but I'm a huge Mark Blitzstein fan. I will shell for him forever. And uh, it was really just a joy to hear these things sung in person because I only knew them from recordings.
0: I, had, I did not know of this show um at all until you had mentioned it um, when mm-hmm. we were preparing for the episode and uh so i i had looked it up and i listened to the interview uh, mm. from wnyc there's a great yeah. um uh mark blitzstein's playing and the original cast is singing at carol channing is in it's her new york debut she's in the cast yeah. so that that was pretty cool some musical people might be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised?
1: Well, I think that love is a very strong word in this case, but it would have to be Jersey Boys. I think nobody would expect me to like that because it's just so, I mean, there are sad and tragic things that happen within it, but the songs are so cheerful and they hit this nostalgia place in all of our brains. Um, But it's a jukebox musical and I don't like jukebox musicals and I don't like that they've taken over Broadway um, because you know that was the one that led to so many other inferior ones. But I think it works really well because it's about how those songs got made so that the songs don't feel forced into the story at all and also because i write songs myself you know i really appreciated that they broke down that process and it was behind the scenes and of course that moment in act two where the composer finally gets his horn section it's just absolutely glorious i had a wonderful time i loved it and i went in not expecting to like it nearly as much as i did so thank you jersey boys
0: (laughs) i remember seeing that way back when a few years after it opened and Mm -hmm. being surprised myself at how much it was just like a very enjoyable experience in the theater Mm -hmm. could require our president or government leaders to see one musical not necessarily playing right now or Mm -hmm. recently since nothing's playing right now and would you have them see
1: i think well speaking of mark blitzstein it's definitely going to be a toss-up between the cradle will rock and the Three Penny Opera, particularly because our current administration is, I think it's an understatement to say, not very big on subtlety. And there is nothing subtle about the messaging of either of these pieces in the way that they're written, in the way that they're meant to be performed. And they're just relentlessly confrontational. And I think That's the kind of wake-up call our leaders need right now to hear that their greed is literally killing people. And I think that's very much in keeping with those stories. So I would choose either one of those.
0: What is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state that you didn't think was possible to get to? I'm
1: going to say the riddle song from Floyd Collins, which may seem like an odd choice because it's such a boisterous, wonderful song, and those choruses have such great grooves in them, and it's so much fun to see the brothers joking with each other. But we know the whole time that scene is going on that Floyd is stuck in that cave, that he's remembering something, and he's living in the past and the present at once. Um, and so it's a particular kind of catharsis, but it's not the same one that you get with other more emotional songs in the show. And so, you know, it's at the end of the first act, or at least it was when I saw it. And, uh, I felt a little bit duped afterward because I was like, yay, cheerful, cheerful, wait a minute. This is so tragic. (laughs) Um, but I think, you know, it's very clear that that's what they intended that's what they were going for and it's enough to keep you coming back I mean there's so much more that would have kept me coming back anyway but it's it's a really intriguing way to keep the audience hooked and wanting to come back for act two
0: now move on to our topic which is the work of Cole Porter and we have a little subheading for this topic which is two things can be true at once which we'll get into um Mm -hmm. but i guess let's just start with kind of like um, a little overview of cole porter and what um kind of what drew you to him and his work um i mean
1: obviously he had big hits with anything goes and kiss me kate but i knew him more from just random songs or songs that were in those musicals that I didn't associate with the musicals at the time because, you know, it's part of the great American Songbook and they stand alone so often and people sing them in cabarets or on albums. And actually my way into him was through, uh, there was this LP of his unpublished songs that I used to take out of the library all the time when I was a kid. Um, And I was just so delighted by the lyrics, especially I think I, got to understand the genius of his music maybe a little bit later, but I think it was because of him that I realized that language is so delicious and that delicious language is the greatest part of the joy of songwriting or lyric writing anyway. Um, There are so many technical things that he does that just really speak to me on a gut level. And, uh, you know, I've been revisiting his work lately because I'm writing a libretto for an opera that takes place in 1936 that really draws on the influences of that time in theater writing and in pop writing. And it's really given me a chance to go back and realize how impressive his range is, that he has all of these songs that we think of as very romantic, but then he has these really nutty, off-the-wall, goofy things as well. Um, And he uses that entire range to express these really complex layered human dynamics that I think sometimes we take for granted or we think, oh, you know, that's a romantic melody or that's a very clever turn of phrase. But he's really getting at things that I think are easy to miss if you blink. He was
0: born in 1891 and died in 1964. So he was like, you know, the early, mid-20th century was his time period. And, you know, I think most people today just know him as the, you know, songwriter, composer, and lyricist of Anything Goes and Kiss Me Kate. Mm-hmm. And they know that he was wrote a ton of songs, but they don't really know what those songs were, maybe, or maybe they've heard, like, mm-hmm. one or two. Um, mm-hmm. But because those two musicals are done in high schools a lot and have had recent bro- a lot of recent Broadway revivals... His um, people know those a lot. But generally, I feel like with the songs, like his work feels as though sometimes it's of another era. And, um, you know, we can get into why that feels that way as well. Um, yeah. But let's talk about your your subtitle for mm-hmm. the episode Two Things Can Be True at Once and what that means to you in terms of Cole Porter. Mm. Well, it's been something that's
1: been on my mind in and outside the context of musical theater lately, because I think that being able to hold two things as true at the same time is something that our society is extremely bad at right now and seems to be getting worse at, Um, that everything has to be distilled into very black and white, You know, something is either tremendous or it's horrible. And there's no gray area anywhere. That model to me feels very much outside the way that we process information right now and the way that we interact with each other, which is really upsetting to me. And so it's been very comforting to go back to the songs of Cole Porter and see that kind of subtlety and sophistication that's
0: there, but that's so sneaky that you might miss it, you know? It is interesting uh, to go into some more of his life that he he was um, married but also gay and it was Mm -hmm. and his wife knew you know that Mm -hmm. that was the case and they you know were very devoted to each other and Mm -hmm. that sounds like another example of holding two and I think also it was advantageous for to be married to him or whatever reasons but Mm -hmm. um but just the idea of holding two things at at once in that way too in his life Mm -hmm. this idea kind of manifests in his his work and his songs um what are some uh examples that you have found yeah, well, I think uh, a good one to start with is The Physician, which I believe, and I
1: could be wrong about this, but I believe that it's a standalone song. I know of it because it's one of the few like, funny songs that sopranos in the opera and recital world like to do as their encore, or maybe as an audition piece when they have to do something that's crossover. And so the idea of this song basically is that this woman is dating a physician, and he always says that he loves this part of her and that part of her, and it gets very clinical and scientific and uses all these really fun words. Um, But the refrain of it is, but he never said he loved me. Um, So, you know, he's saying things like epiglottis and cerebellum, and there's all these fun rhymes like, he said of all his sweeties, I'm sweet as diabetes, and my spleen was as keen as could be, and it's so fun, and you're along for that ride, but then in the end of the B section, she says, he loved every part of me, and yet not me as a whole, which I think is a really sad idea. Um, And so we're laughing at the end of the song because the words are so much fun, But I think it's really easy to miss that it's kind of a sad concept or not. Again, it's possible to hold those two truths at the same time. You can desire somebody and not really like who they are. Like those things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And it's really interesting that he packages this in this really light almost upbeat way.
0: He said my bronchial tubes were entrancing, my epiglottis filled him with glee.
1: He simply loved my larynx and went wild about my pharynx, but he never
0: said he loved me. He said my epidermis was darling, and found my blood as blue as could be. He went through wild ecstatics when I showed him my lymphatics, but he never said he loved me. And though, no doubt, it was not very smart of me, I kept on a-racking my soul to figure out why he loved every part of me, and yet not me as a whole. It it kind of is in a way either or like seeing parts or the whole and having to like fuse those two things together, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of what the song is asking you to do at the end. I think it's a much more complicated idea than people give it credit for and him in general,
1: like you think of him as being like drawing room humor, you know, um, sort of like almost in the vein of, I would say like Noel Coward, like they they seem to have a lot in common with the way their lyrics work. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something much more deep and sinister going on a lot of the time, and we can get into that later with other topics.
0: There's also then the, the lineage of that into other composers, other composers, mm-hmm. lyricists, who also kind of write in this way, we can look at yeah. and, and see how that kind of manifests itself in, in other ways, such as Sondheim. Sondheim is an
1: obvious heir to this kind of a worldview. Um, He talks about Cole Porter as being the influence for his pastiche of the story of Lucy and Jesse in Follies. Um, And yeah, it's a really dense lyric that has a complex rhyme scheme that's about this psychological state of being these two people at the same time, one of whom is the past self and one of whom is the present self. and there, I mean, there are plenty of examples of this, but back to the comic and tragic thing at the same time, uh, my favorite quote uh, by which I try to sort of scale everything that I personally work on is when he was writing companies that the audience would sit for two hours screaming their heads off with laughter and then go home and not be able to sleep. Mm. So that, I don't know if he actually accomplished that in everyone's view, but that has become sort of my rallying cry for every, and like my yardstick for whether or not something I'm doing is working in front of an audience. Um, And another obvious example of this is a little priest at the end of Act One of Sweeney Todd where we're all having fun, getting caught up in the rhymes and the the dance rhythm and everything, but wait, we're talking about killing people and putting them into pies and the state of the world is horrible. Um, Those things are all true at the same time. We're having an excellent time learning about this horrible reality that they're a part of. Um, And another person that came to mind was Michael John Um, Mm LaCusa. And I think for him, it's more about, uh, or more consistently about what the lyrics are doing versus what the music is doing. I think that he has a lot of sort of boisterous, joyful lyrics. And then these really complex harmonic progressions that, clash with each other, like the
0: words in the music have this tension against each other Mm
1: -hmm. that
0: creates that kind of effect. When I think of tension between music and lyrics, I usually think of like lyrics that are sad in a way with boisterous music that creates that tension, Mm -hmm. you know, but to think of it in Michael I think that works
1: both ways. Yeah, Yeah.
0: that there's there's also the instance of... um, as you said, like joyful words with sad music mm-hmm. underneath. You don't get I feel like I just don't think about that or I don't hear those songs as much. Other composers you have here as examples of maybe not <laughs> not so much doing this? Even
1: though it, it feels right and or comfortable to me to explore Uh, or to examine the world in this way, I don't think that that's true for everyone. I don't think that's true for everyone in musical theater history. And that's not to say that it's right or wrong. For me, it's not accurately reflective of our current moment, but, uh, you know, musical theater history has a long, a long life, a long tail. And so I feel like people have approached it in different ways over time. And two people that came to mind for very different reasons for me were Elizabeth Suedos and Jonathan Larson, um, who are operating in totally different ways (laughs) um, and also see the world very differently, like, you know, between themselves. But um, I know that we're both big fans of Runaways. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that had been on my mind. And uh, yeah, I mean, she just has this motor that never ever stops, and she's just firing on all cylinders all the time. Right. Um, they're you know manically gleeful or extremely dark and terrifying. Um, and for me at least, it never seems to be both of those things at the same time. And then conversely, I think Jonathan Larson's songs are also in their own way uncomplicated in that they are not as elaborately layered as some of the other things that we've been talking about. I think that what is appealing about his work is that he will take a very simple idea and then he'll, you know, just spin it out for a little while um, and he'll take you along with him. Uh, I mean, like, Lovey Boheme, for example, is, well, it's a list song. So I guess that's kind of easy. It's kind of a cop-out example on my part, but like, it says one thing and it says it for a long time, but it's really fun the way that it gets said. But, you know, I, I listened to several different songs from Rent just to reorient myself when I was thinking this through. And I think, yeah, there there aren't a lot of songs where I feel like, we've arrived at a new idea or a new emotional place Mm -hmm. by the end of whatever the song is. But it's pleasing for one reason or another to just dwell in the world of the song for a while. And I think part of that is because he works in the rock idiom.
0: So let's get back to this idea in Cole Porter um, Mm -hmm. and just some other examples of packing... um, uh, of this and also the idea of how much darkness is in his lyrics that's kind of offset mm-hmm. sometimes by this um, you know lightness in the music but just kind of looking more closely at how dark these lyrics and are going um, which mm-hmm. we kind of don't always realize when we're listening I
1: mean, I think a prime example of this is So in Love, which is so romantic and yet so dark and violent, that we can talk about that. I mean, we can dissect that a little bit more yeah. in your next segment because it, it, it's a master class in all of these things at once. Um, so there's just so much to dissect. But I, So I was uh, watching a, an old broadcast of Kiss Me Kate um, from, I don't know, maybe like, 15 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, like they start with another open and another show, which was a song that I learned when I was a teenager. And I was like, ooh, this is fun, you know, jazz hands and everything. But they said, okay, so the second verse is another job that you hope at last will make your future forget your past wait a minute, what happened in that path? Like, why do you have to forget it? What the hell happened? And then the next line is another pain where the ulcers grow. And like, yeah, that's cute. We're stressed out. Life in the wicked stage is really hard, but that's horrible. (laughs) Why do we have ulcers? Um, But you know, it's catchy and upbeat, and so we just kind of don't think anything of it except for, like, oh, look at those quirky theater people doing their quirky theater thing.
0: And it's really kind of touching on, like, how painful this life can be. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. Another opening, another show
1: in Philly, Boston, or Baltimore. Another job that you hope at last will make your future forget your past. Another pay where the owls grow. Another hope, another show. And then uh, this is kind of a goofy example, and you may agree or disagree with me on this, but. um you know, brush up your Shakespeare toward the end of the show. I mean, it's one bad joke after another. And of course, it's just it's delightful because of the terrible puns. And it's just so many bad jokes. And I happen to love bad jokes. And this is something that Cole Porter does well and so frequently. Um, but you know, like if she says your behavior is heinous, kick her right in the Coriolanus, like that's hilarious because I'm emotionally a five-year-old, but like, you know, beyond that, it's just, it's like, wait a minute, you're going to beat her because she mouths off to you? Like, that's not okay. I mean, now I, I don't run with this as far as some other people do. And I guess we can think about it differently in the context of the show, Um, But just that the the whole song is relentlessly brutal in that way. I don't quite agree. But every once in a while, a moment like that will pop out. It's like, oh, wait a minute. This isn't just a a fun little number for two would-be mobsters. Like, there's something else going on here.
0: And when you say in the context of the show, you mean because Kiss Me Kate and the um, Taming of the Shrew that it's based on is also has domestic violence in it as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, which we see, you know, in various ways both on and off the stage and depending on the way it's framed from moment to moment, like we're either meant to laugh at it or not.
0: Right. Um, and yeah, which is interesting for its own reasons, but yeah. Uh, Kiss Me, Kate is is a really interesting show and I think, especially since we had the revival of it very recently and we had to kind of look at it with like really fresh eyes again i mean there's been many revivals there have been many revivals but right um but just recently we had to on broad it was on broadway and we've had to we had to look at it again you know and and everything and i think it is like a an exercise in a way of holding a lot of things to be true at once at uh, the team mm-hmm. you know taming of the shrew and kiss me kate you know they're that it um you know, there the show does have a lot of, you know, violence and in it, and um, uh-huh. but there's how it deals with it, and are you like how what how are you going to interpret that? Like, I feel like people dismiss it, it can easily dismiss something like Kiss Me, Kate, because of and Taming of the Shrew, but because Kiss Me, Kate contains Taming of the Shrew, to just dismiss right. it, whereas like, to, you can look at it in this way of you know holding different things true at once let's talk about some songs not in
1: kiss me kate the next one on our list was miss otis regrets and i have to tell you that this is a song that i learned i think when i was maybe 14 that for some reason i got trotted out to sing a lot like in talent shows and in nursing homes um and everybody thought it was so cute and clever. You know, Miss Otis regrets she's unable to lunch today, and then you find out it's because she had this ill-fated affair, and she killed her lover, and then she was subsequently killed. Yeah. Um, and like, it's supposed to be hilarious because it's
0: so like tongue-in-cheek and, and witty and everything, but it's a super violent song. I was definitely not prepared for the the Direction it went in. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: If I remember correctly, he wrote it because someone at Yale made a bet with him that he couldn't write a song with the title "Miss Otis Regrets," and so he did it. And like, this is where it went. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just incredible to me. Yeah. And um, I think it d- depends on who's interpreting it too, whether or not that comes across. I mean, I know that like Bobby Short was uh, uh, um, like. A, wonderful interpreter of so many of Cole Porter's songs Um, but if I'm remembering this because I heard it so long ago but it seemed very cavalier in its execution and then just the other day I heard Ethel Waters sing it and it's so heartbreaking.
0: Miss oldest regret, she's unable to lunch today. Miss oh, Otis regrets she's unable to lunch today. She is sorry to be delayed,
1: but last evening down in Lover's Lane
0: she strayed. Madam, Miss Oldest oh, regret she's unable to And found
1: that the dream of love was gone Because it just takes on such a different meaning So it really depends on whose hands it's in also um, Which I think is so interesting because he has a very clear point of view And yet different singers have run with it in so many different directions Miss Otis regrets she's
0: unable to lunch today Madam, Miss Otis regrets she's unable to lunch today Mm
1: -hmm. And she's sorry to be delayed
0: But last evening down in lovers' lane she strayed Madam, Miss Otis regrets she's unable to lunch today She woke up and found that her dream of love was gone.
1: Madam, she ran to the man who had led her so far astray. And from under her velvet
0: gown, she drew a gun and shot her lover down. Madam, Miss Otis regrets, she's unable to lunch today. It doesn't quite matter, I guess, how, like, the tempo at which the information is being delivered, you know, um, Uh that it's either, like, it has, if it's fast, it has a different type of delivery, though, with, you know, or if it's slow, it's kind of a little more like, uh... I don't know prim and prop feels a little more like prim and proper yeah yeah I think those are the, the adjectives I was looking for um yeah. but uh yeah I mean it's it it gets really dark with the mob uh-huh. the mob kills her I was like what uh-huh what? it does invite you to enjoy the song a bit in the beginning and sure. then by the end you're like wait what did I just what was that yeah, that's smiling the trick he at? plays yeah. on you, right yeah, it's and it's kind of yeah. it kind of is creepy in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. uh So then, the next song we want to talk about is uh Well Did You ev- Ever?" Is how mm-hmm. it how it's, it's, it's actually like that. Yeah.
1: Well, did you ever?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, which is just it's party gossip among a lot of rich people and. It's this endless list of people dying in hurricanes and avalanches. And I think a woman eats glass at one point and dies. But then there are these uh, these little interstitial things about, like, our drinks are so great. And our salad is so great. And, like, I, I don't, I, I can't really recite all the lyrics. Yeah, yeah, but, it's a lot. Uh, but it's really shocking to go back and forth from... Oh these horrible deaths
0: to let's eat our salad <laughs> you know? yeah the, Which is yeah the Sorry, the the full I guess hook of the song after well did you ever is uh, what a swell party this is because yes, they're, they're at yes. like a, I guess they're at a party um, mm. you know during the song and it's kind of just like, you know, all these horrible things happen, but they're the people singing aren't really like fully emotionally connected to what they're talking about. They're just saying uh-huh. these things, and yeah, oh well, and then they just toss it off. Yeah, and... and
1: or they don't care. They know that these awful things are happening, and they don't care.
0: Right, because it's not like them. It's not like fully affecting them where they are. You know how whatever uh-huh. it is.
1: Have you heard the coast of Maine just got hit by a hurricane?
0: Well, did you ever, what a swell party this is.
1: Have you heard the poor dear Blanche got
0: run down by an avalanche? Well, did you ever, what a swell party this is. (laughs) It's great, it's
1: grand, it's wonderland, it's tops.
0: It's first. it's you Punt, it's first. what soup, what fish, that needs what a dish,
1: what salad, what cheese, pardon me one moment, have you heard? The line that stuck with me was, have you heard Professor Munch ate his wife and divorced his lunch? Oh yeah. And I always thought that was so hilarious. And then I was just mulling it over in my brain the other day, and I was like, oh, that, that is awful on so many levels. I mean, it's very clever, obviously, because of the reversal of, you know, you divorce your wife and you eat your lunch. And yeah. if you switch those words around, it means something very, very different. But right. there are so many ways that can go, and none of them are pleasant.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's And there. this song also has a lot of different... Uh, versions of it um yes which is which is cool because you get to you know see all these different interpretations but I guess it's from is this the one that's is from the show do Barry was a lady I think I think
1: so but it's also made its way into some other things yeah
0: um like
1: high society high society um and it's also in that film at Long Last Love yes. with Burt Reynolds and Madeline Kahn.
0: Yeah and which Sybil Shepherd nobody enjoyed but me. <laughs> but... I, I haven't seen the movie, but I watched that clip. Um I'm a huge Sybil Shepherd and obviously Madeline Kahn Oh fan. yeah. Of it's I guess it's all Cole Porter songs. Yeah. Yeah. Um in a kind of like a jukebox movie. And then the next one we'll talk about is from Anything Goes. His other big show, which is the song "Friendship," which I Uh first heard um, on a Disney sing along tape with like Mickey Ah! Mouse, Donald Duck, and uh, Goofy singing Uh it. um, Which uh, was is it's a good song for them.
1: (laughs) I guess so, but it's it's really mean Mm. in a way that I think again is easy to miss if you're not really sitting with the lyrics for any length of time. Um, you know, the the lyrics get progressively meaner, I think, yeah. and then there's, you know, if they ever put a bullet through your brain, I'll complain, <laughs> like, yes, haha, ha, that's funny, but, like, if you think about that image, yeah. like, who wants that to happen to their best friend? Nobody, I hope. <laughs> right, but,
0: right, it's the kind yeah. of thing where it, it just whizzes by, and mm-hmm. um, especially in a song, like, I don't know if this song is, like, super fast, but it's a, it's a kind of bouncy numbers. It's so, up-tempo. Yeah. Yeah, it has a bounce to it. So, it definitely easily goes by without really having to think too hard about it.
1: If you're ever in a jam, here I am! If you ever need a pal, I'm your gal. If you ever feel so happy you land in jail,
0: I'm your bail.
1: It's friendship! Friendship! you the perfect Friendship! friendship. When all our
0: so I think you had watched um, Cole Porter's Aladdin which I don't know. Yes. So, it's from 1958,
1: and it is an adaptation of the Aladdin story set in China,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: which was not quite what I was expecting. Yeah. Um, and it's very much of its era, mm-hmm. um, and I it could not be done today the way that it was done, which was white actors and yellow face. Right. I mean, that's just really not cool. Um, and as I told you, the rhyme that really stuck out to me that made me... <gasps> was a uh, noodle soup and poodle soup when they talk about what's available in the marketplace yeah. I was like oh that's horrible um but there is a really fun song in it called no wonder taxes are high that I think applies very much outside the context of the show and it's about how all of the the uh, citizens have to pay very high taxes because the emperor needs his fancy things yeah um So that that feels pretty resonant right now.
0: It also just feels like a great idea for a Cole Porter song. Sure. I mean,
1: (laughs) that could live in most shows. And it doesn't have
0: to be an emperor. It could
1: be a president. It could be a mayor. It could be pretty much anybody
0: Mm -hmm. in a position of power. Yeah. Um, Cool. And should we talk a little bit about... um, just kind of what I mentioned previously or earlier in the episode of just why Cole Porter songs kind of do feel like they're of another era um, mm. just in terms of style and, or yeah. know, how they're, how they're performed and mm-hmm. that, all that. Uh, well, I mean, he, he died in 1964,
1: which was, wasn't that when Fiddler on the Roof, happened and when everybody thought it was like officially the end of the golden age of musical theater in America
0: some yeah somewhere around there yeah
1: yeah Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he didn't live to see the era of rock musicals and I would be so fascinated to see what would have happened if he had lived to see hair and how that would or would not have influenced whatever he did next I mean I can't even imagine, like, I cannot wrap my mind around right. it. I, I wonder if it's also this kind of layered writing that he does that is at the same time delicious in a way that I feel like lyrics maybe are less delicious now and mm-hmm. more um, utilitarian. Yeah. I don't think that's true for everybody, but I do, and obviously I think that, you know, the reason that something like Hamilton is so successful is because the language is fun and you do get a lot of wordplay and you, but you don't always get that in everything that gets produced nowadays for one reason or another. Um, so I think that's part of it. And then, you know, that I have a big, uh, bee in my bonnet about the song style, like Mm -hmm. the singing style, the actual performance style that feels very specific to his time That, again, because of the advent of the rock musical and so many other stylistic influences that have come in since he died, um, that people aren't singing in a style that is complementary of his work as a writer anymore, I Mm
0: -hmm. think. And I wonder if part of it is that we have... we're, We're much more inclined now to look at, like, songs that are kind of more going on, like an emotional journey where there's like a turn and you know those kind of that kind of thing whereas like these a lot of these um they have a form and there is like a turn but it's not as much as a it's not as not really like a character song or it's not as much of an obvious turn yeah
1: um you can see that you know the first a is this and the second a is this and then the b takes us in a totally different direction and then we land in a whole other place Mm -hmm. although that sort of contradicts what we were saying about Miss Otis' regrets. Um, But, uh, you know, it was also, like, the reason we know these songs is not because they were in these shows that are by and large obsolete, but just because they stand so well on their own because they're oftentimes not exclusive to a particular plot point Mm -hmm. in a show. Um, And because they're not necessarily driving story in the same way and because he hit kind of a peak, um, you know, in the timeline of American musical theater before things like Oklahoma happened, you know, so that Mm -hmm. like the meaning and placement of songs within a show started to take on a new meaning and a new context. That I think maybe that's why. They feel old to us because, in some cases, they may not be as integral to the storytelling overall.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think with Miss Otis' regrets, I still think of that kind of like as a joke joke song, even though there is, Mm -hmm. even though there are turns. Um, Yeah. But it's more about the joke than about. It's not like a character um, Mm -hmm. song, and I think we're yeah we're we're a lot more like attuned to like character songs even when they're taken out of context or they're they mm-hmm. don't or they're just kind of theater character songs without you know maybe they're from a song cycle or... everything is
1: so action driven now
0: in right. a way that
1: perhaps it wasn't when he started out
0: mm-hmm. yeah for sure cool Shall well, we move on to our next section why is this so good um so we can get more in depth into, uh, into the song So In Love from Kiss Me Kate. Sure, yes. Um, so why did you pick this song for why is this so good? There are so many
1: reasons. Um, and this is where I think I can speak more obviously about what he's doing musically as well as lyrics because I feel like we know him more for his lyrical tricks. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is really interesting uh, because well first of all the the framework that the music sits on is so sparse in a way that I don't typically think of him like because he plays with words yeah so much but like, there's very little wordplay in this song and there's only a couple words per line yeah. strange dear but true dear when I'm close to you dear, strange dear.
0: dear, When I'm close to you,
1: dear, the stars feel the sky. So in love with you, am
0: I? I mean, there's barely any
1: words there. Yeah, so. there's a lot.
0: I feel like. Yeah, I feel like I'm in a different lyricist's songs in a bit. Yeah, almost. But
1: then what's so great about it is that it leaves all this room for the music to do the work that it needs to do. Mm -hmm. And the music isn't terribly complicated either, but the architecture of it is so plain and not plain as an uninteresting but plain as an easy to see Mm -hmm. Um, what it does is so obvious but still so thrilling because of the way that it's executed so you know you have the shape of one phrase and then the next phrase the climax of that phrase goes to a higher place pitch wise and then the next phrase tops that and that keeps happening over and over again Mm -hmm. and even though it's an aaba like when you get to uh so for example the stars fill the sky so in love with you am i and then when you get to that same place in the next a you know darling why that line has the same overall shape as the stars fill the sky but it tops it in mm-hmm. register
0: even without you my arm
1: that happens over and over and over again until you get to this high point of I'm yours till I die which happens and then that part gets repeated but when it gets repeated I'm yours till I die is on an even higher pitch that it, that it feels even more climactic and it's just so beautifully and simply crafted
0: mm-hmm. to me
1: and hurt me Deceive me Desert me
0: And I say it doesn't feel like Cole Porter, but that's just at first. Then you, then you, when you really listen and look at the words, then you find Cole Porter stuff in there, like mm-hmm. just the use of the words like "deer" um, and repeating "deer." Um, yeah, feels very kind of like him and um, mm-hmm. mysterious and delirious. Yeah. I
1: mean, that's a great rhyme, but it's also those are the longest words in the whole song, like most of them are one or two syllables at most. Mm-hmm. In love with the night mysterious, the night when you first were there. In love with my joy.
0: One line that I love, the mysterious, the, the in love with the night, mysterious. Just the mm-hmm. the idea of being in love with the night, the not with you, yeah. not with you, but the night when I first met you that night. Um, mm-hmm. Just kind of like displacing him and putting the night in there instead um, mm-hmm. is so cool. And also
1: the the the. Uh structure of that phrase in love with the night mysterious I think that gets back to what you were saying about not feeling like it's of this era mm-hmm. we don't talk that way right really. it's not anymore you know
0: right so it's little details like that that make it yeah. feel grounded in another time right and feel very Cole Porter whereas like you would more if you were speaking more conversationally now you would say and I'm in, was in love with that mysterious night you wouldn't put the adjective mm-hmm at the end of the line like that. Um, right. There's something that feels so magical about the way that he has phrased it instead. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the really dark lines. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so taunt me and hurt me,
1: deceive me, desert me. I'm yours till I die. I mean, that's not a typical cheerful expression of love.
0: Mm-hmm. That I mean, that
1: doesn't feel like a happy-go-lucky romantic couple to me at all there's something really sinister going on there Yeah. Um, and again it's like more than one thing can be true at once and also within the context of the show she's very stubborn she is very strong-willed she knows what she wants she has a handle on her life um and she's saying taunt me and hurt me deceive me desert me and like you can be a quote-unquote strong woman in the way that everybody seems to want female characters to be all the time
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and yet have that kind of a vulnerability Yeah. or be aggressive but then want somebody to be aggressive to you back as opposed to being the aggressor all the time. Right. So I think in another composer's hands that lyric could be really, really boring because Mm -hmm. it looks like it does the same thing over and over again, but he accomplishes so much by, you know, even changing one note or changing, you know, the, the intervallic leap by a step or Mm -hmm. something, you know, from one time to the next, Yeah, that it doesn't feel boring at all. It feels like it's really going somewhere and it feels very cathartic to get to the end of it.
0: Yeah. And she repeats so in love multiple times mm-hmm. at yep. the end. Um, and each time it it's a little different. And it's bringing mm-hmm. her back down from that climax in a way um, mm-hmm. where she says, I'm and yours till I die. Those chords are not
1: very straightforward. Like that's a, a, I wouldn't say a crunchy harmonic progression because it's not, but it's, it's sophisticated.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, And it's
1: also interesting that the climax of the song is not so in love with you, am I? It's I'm yours till I die, the thing that actually precedes the end of the song. So she's not ending the song on a big expressive high note, but it actually deflates it just a little bit Mm -hmm. because it's it's not just optimistic. It's not just happy. It's more than one thing at once. So taunt me And hurt me Deceive me To set the last, am I like take the last note up the octave to mm-hmm. make it this big climactic moment? But he didn't do that.
0: Yeah,
1: and it changes the meaning entirely.
0: Yeah, yeah. That I feel like that's her just coming down from that idea. Like I'm yours till I die. Oh, oh crap! <laughs> I'm. <yeah. laughs> Cause especially when you think in the context of the show, like they're, they're separated, um, Mm -hmm. that, um, but working, but working together. Um, Mm -hmm. so it's this kind of thing where she's, she's already tried to get out of this, but she can't. Um. Right. It's interesting too, uh, I noticed when I was
1: watching this that her very first appearance on stage has this song as underscore. Mm. This is like her theme. And everything surrounding it to this point has been pretty bubbly and upbeat and you know there are a lot of fun people running around making jokes and then she comes in and the beginning of the A section starts in the orchestra underneath her and then you know that something strange is about to happen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He starts out in a minor key. You know, mm-hmm. strange, dear, but true, dear, when I'm close to you, dear, the stars fill the sky, feels like it would be a very positive thing that a lesser composer would put in a major key. But because mm-hmm. the relationship is so complicated, that's not where it starts at all.
0: Yeah. Yeah, does it ever go into major? No. Um, there, there's a, in the B section, there's a right. major court. In love with mm-hmm. the night, mysterious. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like, um, which is when she's thinking about the past. Um, right,
1: and also delirious is yeah. a major court, which is an interesting choice in itself.
0: Yeah, when she said, and, um, and she ends that section with this kind of, with this weird kind of line, when I knew that you could care. Which is mm-hmm. kind of like a weird use of tense there. Um, yeah. And it's also not like I
1: knew that you cared for me. It's yeah. I knew that you could care.
0: Yeah. Like if you
1: wanted to.
0: If right. you were
1: so inclined. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this whole section feels just like in, in this past where she mm-hmm. was where she was uh, in love with him before all this minor minor key stuff came into it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. let's move on to our final section, which is something wonderful, where we talk about upcoming or current musical theater things. It doesn't have to be musicals going on right now, per se, since we don't have anything right. going on <laughs> physically on the stage, but it could be books, events, um, anything we're excited about or want to give a shout out to.
1: Um, I have a couple of thoughts about this, one of which is that I'm happy to have the chance to catch up on and engage with some things that I missed the first time around that I'm now able to stream or experience in some other way Mm -hmm. because there's been this embarrassment of riches of available content. That was not there before because everybody's stuck at home yeah. right now. And um, some of these theaters and opera companies and other performing organizations have been so very gracious about making these experiences available to people in this way. Um, So that was one thought that I had. Um, Another one is I think this is a really curious time. There's kind of a a great leveling going on in some ways because we all have these same platforms to be doing the things that we're doing and putting them out in the world. Of course, we're robbed of the ability to be in the same place at the same time. But then as a result, like you see people's wallpaper and they're children running Mm -hmm. around in the background and like you there's an extent to which you can curate those kinds of things and to which they're in your control but then there are so many random things that happen so informally and spontaneously so that like how can you diva worship at a time when you see that all these divas are really just people like watering their plants and stuff (laughs) Um, you know and and maybe you know, the the more, I hate this word, but I'll just say it, emerging mm-hmm. writers or whomever, like, they have the same, uh, you know, way to get their work out there that other more established folks do. And right. that maybe this will make us think about this a little bit differently going forward.
0: Cool. Well, that's um, mm-hmm. looking toward the future. My, my Something Wonderful will be looking at the past. I recently um watched the into the woods um I call it a video because I used to have it on VHS but now it is now I it's on DVD or YouTube mm-hmm. or whatever um but the original production I just recently re-watched that um mm-hmm. and it it's just so good. yeah it just really held up and it was just like a really good time to see it again I hadn't seen it in a while um yeah I mean, Sondheim, a lot of Sondheim stuff is always, is, is good in a crisis. Um yeah. <laughs> And this <laughs> That is very true. And this one, like, very obviously so. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a question or comment about an episode or about musical theater or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by taking a moment to rate it on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at Scene2Song, on Twitter at SceneSong, and on Facebook at Scene2Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.